hope everyone here and your families are all doing well. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> I mentioned to you last week that I wasn't really for sure how far in this chapter I would go. Nobody said anything, so I guess you don't want me to go far. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only kidding. Well, only partially kidding. <laughs> so I, I know I'll at least go through the end of verse 11, although I want to push forward. There are some things in Ezekiel that I'm determined that I would like to uh, spend some time on. Uh, so uh, sometime between now and, and whenever Jesus comes again, uh, I hope to, uh, uh, to be able to get to a few of those chapters because I think they are just as relevant to our own world and to the way people in our world think uh, as they were at the time they were written. And uh, I think uh, there are people who believe that they have fresh and new ideas that no one's ever thought of or ever heard before uh, and they think they are fresh and new uh, simply because they're not aware uh, that they are old and uh, as it turns out uh, people rarely come up with new ideas uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard in seminary came from a, a, a source that it actually, you actually wouldn't have thought uh, he would say something like this uh, but one of my instructors uh, said one day brethren if you ever think that you've come up with a, a new idea or a new interpretation you better not say anything <laughs> and you better go back and do more reading <laughs> because uh, either someone has come up with the idea before and you're just not aware of it or if it is new to you it's probably dangerous and so you need to spend some time sifting through it and that I think has certainly turned out to prove true in my own study of the Bible over these years that often I think that well uh, this is this is something interesting this is, I've never thought of it this way before and what I've learned to do is rather than come here uh, to is to read more and to look more for people who have in fact thought of the same idea and, and to see how they've sifted through it uh, to see if it holds up. Because, and now this will tie back into what we're going to study this morning, because the goal of, of preaching isn't to be fresh and new. The goal of preaching is to be right. To be, to be right according to the word of God. And the Bible certainly comes from the point of view that there is a right and that we can get to it, that we can understand it. And I think our generation needs to hear that more and more because it's a generation that isn't quite sure if there's a right. And part of the reason they're not quite sure if there's a right is because they're not sure either that we can get it right. The Word of God, the Word of God 
invites study. It invites thought. It invites contemplation. And it it invites all of those things before it invites belief. Because the Bible calls upon us to believe it, yes. But it calls upon us to believe it after investigating whether or not it's true. And that's the case with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just presented to us in Scripture as, well, Jesus was crucified and three days later there was an empty tomb and his disciples came to believe that the reason there was an empty tomb is because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, will you believe that? It's not just that there was an empty tomb. There's more to it than that. And what's more to it is the evidence upon which belief is invited, called for. A whole reorientation of life and thinking is called for. Not simply based upon, well, the Bible says the tomb was empty, so the tomb was empty. No, even the Bible's presentation of the empty tomb is based upon additional evidence and if you were and I were living in the first century it invites us to investigate that evidence and then reassess whether or not it's true that Jesus rose from the dead alright so we're thinking about those big ideas there as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and we consider what Paul is laying out to the Corinthians in this particular section. And as we saw at the end of our study last week in verse 2, Paul has laid out for the Corinthians uh, what the crux of the matter is. What the crux of the matter is. That is, he has laid before them the possibility that if they believe what he has preached but it turns out that there is in fact no such thing as resurrection then their faith is in vain however however verse 2 is broad enough and wide enough to allow for this as well if they believe the group that Paul thinks are false teachers But there turns out there is resurrection from the dead. Then their faith in the message of the false teachers turns out to be vain as well. But Paul has also wasted his previous time on them because their appearance of belief in the truth turns out to have no substance at all. And so this brings us to the real crux of Christianity, the real important question. It's not, well, do you believe that Christianity is true? That's that's not the most important question. It turns out. It it turns out it, it isn't, well, do you believe it's true? Well, then it's true for you. No. The real question is, is it true that Jesus rose from the dead? Did that really happen? Is it factually provable 
If that's factually provable, then there's, subs there's substance to the message of Christianity. And there's substance to your belief in the message of Christianity. If it turns out that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, if there is no evidence for that, then your faith is in vain. Your life is pitiful. You might as well move on. Because our understanding of life and God and the truth and of how we're supposed to live and of the future that supposedly God has for the world turns out to have no foundation at all. And what I, one thing I'll just point out at the outset that I find remarkable is that if the real question of Christianity is did Jesus rise from the dead, why is it still around? <laughs> Because that seems to be something easily disprovable, doesn't it? A man was crucified, died, was buried, and three days later rose again. And that system of belief is still around? Why? Why? Well, it's still around because it turns out disproving the resurrection of Jesus is hard to do. It's hard to do. And it's not hard to do because of lack of evidence. It's just simply hard to do. And one of the reasons that it's hard to do is because it's true. Now, let's look at what Paul has to say as he expands now in verse 3 upon why it is that he is going to himself recapitulate the message that he preached to the Corinthians and that they received. And then as he does state it again, he's going to expand upon it. Well, what's his reasoning here? All right, so verse 3, he writes this, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored all, excuse me, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now here, as we already know from verse 1, Paul is restating the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians. That is his first objective. Then in verse 12, He's going to start expanding upon the logical implications of the gospel or the message that he preached. The second thing that we know Paul did, and that's important to keep in mind, 
is that in verse 1, he also says that the Corinthians received this message. And in the word received, Paul is using specialized terminology that itself will now come into play and play an, an extremely important role in what he has to say to the Corinthians. And the technical terminology that he is using comes out of Judaism. And it's terminology of an authoritative oral tradition. That is where, all right, now, you, if, if you think with me for just a minute, Jesus and the Pharisees often conflicted, not over the interpretation or the authority of Scripture, but over the authority of the oral traditions, the oral traditions that had been passed down from one generation of Jews to another, from authoritative rabbis, where the Pharisees took the oral tradition to have more weight and more significance than Scripture itself. But there was an official language of that oral tradition, especially in Greek, that referred to the giving over of information and the reception of that oral tradition. All right? So Paul, coming, who was a Pharisee, takes that language and uses it as he writes especially to these early churches, most of whom came from what? They came from a Jewish background because they were Jews themselves and they would have understood the terminology that he was using. So Paul is able to converse or to traffic, if you prefer that term, but Paul is able to write and to converse in the language of first century Judaism. And he's able to convey the authority of scripture and the authority of oral tradition side by side in the language that his audiences were already prepared to hear and to accept. Now what Paul is suggesting here is that the gospel that the gospel is a reflection of the fusion together of scripture and oral tradition. The oral tradition, as we'll see, relates both to what the scriptures themselves teach, to what happened to Jesus, and finally to what Jesus' disciples personally witnessed or saw. So there's three aspects of the oral tradition. There's three aspects of the gospel. And it's not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's scripture, what happened to Jesus, and then finally, what Jesus' own disciples witnessed or saw. Watch how Paul develops this. First of all, in verse 3, we get our second term that relates to oral tradition, where Paul says, I delivered unto you. I delivered unto you. 
The term that's translated delivered literally means to give over. It has myriad uses in the New Testament. It's even the term for what Judas did to Jesus, often translated in English as betrayed, literally just to give over. So depending upon the context, this word carries or conveys different ideas. In the context of oral information and the passing along of information, it is, the, it is one of those terms that in the Jewish tradition conveys the giving over or the passing along of authoritative oral information from one person or from one generation to another. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul is the one who gave over this authoritative information to the Corinthians. But Paul was also himself a recipient of this oral information or of this oral tradition. Look at what he says. I passed along to you among the first things that which I also received. You see that? And why does he use the word also? He uses the word also because in verse 1 he said that the Corinthians received the message that Paul himself preached. Now he is coming back and he is saying, I passed along to you, I passed along to you a standing authoritative oral tradition of which I myself was a recipient. Now, the effect of what Paul is doing is this. Consider this for a minute. One thing Paul must be arguing here is that the message that he preached did not originate with him. He didn't make it up. It wasn't his own spin on the gospel. Paul is very careful. He is very careful in Galatians and in Philippians, but especially in Galatians, that everyone understands, at least who has access to that information, that the message he preached, he was careful to ensure that it was true, that it was correct. In fact, rather than me just telling you this, in case you, you might not have read this in a while, let's go to the book of Galatians for a minute. And let's look at, at how careful Paul is at spelling out the pains he went through to make sure that the message he was preaching was the right message. So let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Well, let's, let's look at Galatians chapter 2. I said the wrong number. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 together. Paul in chapter 1 has spelled out how he came to have information. And it came directly by revelation of Christ. He'll get around to that in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. But look at what he has to say. Galatians 2 and 1. Then 14 years after, that is after he had started preaching himself and after he had 
joined together with Barnabas and he had, es he had escaped and things of that nature. Look at what he says. Fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also and I went up by revelation. Now notice what he says here. And communicated unto them. Them means the apostles. I communicated unto them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But privately to them which were of reputation. Now notice this. Lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. What's he talking about? Now Paul has had the privilege of seeing the resurrected Jesus. He says this in chapter 1 of Galatians. He says this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul had gone among the apostles after he had spent some time with Jesus. He had gone out with Barnabas, had been preaching himself, but after 14 years, Paul is saying in Galatians that he came back to Jerusalem and he spoke privately with the people who mattered. And there were people who mattered. Peter and John among them, he will go on to say. And James as well. Why did he come back to Jerusalem? He came back to communicate to them the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles lest he had been running in vain. What's he doing? He's checking to make sure that he's preaching the gospel correctly. And he's going back to the people who were the original apostles of Jesus and he's saying, all right, here's what I preached. Is it right? Am I getting it right? What if he wasn't getting it right? See, think about that for a minute. What if he wasn't getting the gospel right? then Paul understands that he's wasting his time. He's running in vain. He's running emptily. If the message isn't right, there's no point in preaching. So I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I went back to that original generation. I went back to Jerusalem where the apostles were. And I communicated to them the gospel that I preached because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Now what I want you to see here is that Paul in 1 Corinthians sees himself as a beneficiary and a recipient of an authoritative body of information. That authoritative body of information, he himself, according to what he writes in Galatians, went back and double-checked to make sure he had it right. Now he's saying to the Corinthians, I gave over to you an authoritative body of information of which I myself was the recipient. All right? So now we could ask this question. Just based on verse 3 alone, we have this question. What were the apostles preaching? And thus, what was the authoritative body of information that Paul received and that he passed along to the Corinthians and that the Corinthians received. 
And incidentally, I might add, just as a secondary thought, with all this use of the word vain being thrown around, four or five times in 1 Corinthians 15 alone, we encountered it again about Paul's preaching in Galatians chapter 2. Isn't it worth our time to think about whether our faith has any substance at all? And isn't it worth everybody's time to consider that according to the scriptures, that if you don't get the gospel right, your preaching is vain, your running is vain, and the people's faith who hear your vain message turns out itself to be vain. Getting the gospel right matters. It matters. It's not something that you can just flippantly treat. Right? The goal here isn't just to, to get people into a Christian church of any variety or denomination or type. Denominationalism, in fact, doesn't matter at all here. What matters is what is true. Are you preaching the truth? And the Bible doesn't just tell us, all right, well, you know, God says Jesus rose from the dead. Take it or leave it. No, it says God has taken pains to inspire certain individuals to write the truth. A accurate historical account of what God wants man to know of what God has done in the world. And here's the evidence for God's actions. And part of that evidence is what Jesus' own disciples saw, heard, and understood. And so it's their witness, their testimony, in addition to the witness and testimony and accuracy of what is written in Scripture. There are layers of evidence to the message of the resurrection. And Paul now gets into those different layers as we push forward with verse 3. All right, now, there's some things that I want you to pay attention to as, as a matter of study and understanding for what Paul is doing in what follows in the first section of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 they form a unit of information with a noticeable pattern. I should also add that actually verses 3 through 11 themselves are a single unit. They're a single unit. There's a pattern. I hope to, see you, uh, I hope to show you what that pattern is. All right? So if we think, though, just small, verses 3 through 5 form a noticeable pattern and unit of information. The pattern is signaled by the repetition of the phrase, if you're looking at the King James Version, it's the phrase, and that. It's that or and that, all right? So let me read it, and you read along with me, but also listen. 
I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. All right, what did Paul receive? What did he pass over to them? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, then if you want to continue after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me. Now actually, verses 5 through 8 go together. In other words, the last and that that you see in verse 5 has a lot of subpoints, if you think about it as subpoints. <laughs> and those subpoints go from verse 5 through verse 8. But there are actually four major components to the gospel Paul received and that he passed along to the, uh, to the Corinthians. Four major components. Right? Four major components. The first one is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. If you want to know what the earliest message of Christians were, was, excuse me, if you want to know what the apostles were preaching, if you want to know what Paul gave over to the Corinthians, if you want to know where the true gospel starts. The true gospel begins with Christ died for our sins based upon or in accordance with the scriptures. Now think about something for a minute here. What underpins this component of the message? The scriptures. That's correct. The message begins with what do the scriptures say would happen to Messiah? And what the scriptures say would happen to the Messiah is that he would die. But he wouldn't just die for the reasons that any other, well, crucified criminal would die. He wouldn't die for any particular reason that any other human being would die. Why would he die? He would die on behalf of or on account of our sins. He would give his life then as a sacrifice for human sin. He would die for us on our behalf, in our place. Our sins would be the cause of his death. Notice, just in that little statement... This reminds me of a story. Sorry, I'm not chasing a rabbit, but it fits, okay? Maybe I am, but it still fits. It reminds me of a story once that, if you've never heard this name, some of you will. Brother Ben Bogard, who was one of the founders of the Missionary Baptist Seminary in Little Rock. Brother Penn told this story one time that a lady came out after church one Sunday and complained that Brother Bogard never preached on anything simple. 
And so she asked him, why can't you just preach on John 3.16? And so the next Sunday, Brother Bogard, if I, under, if I remember the story correctly, Brother Bogard started in John 3.16. And the only word that he started with and preached a whole sermon on the first day was the reason why the word for is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And then he preached on what love meant. And then he preached on who God was. And he did all of that in rather Brother Bogard fashion to illustrate that John 3.16 isn't quite so, it's, it's simple, it's profound, but there's a whole lot of depth there to be explored and to think about. Now I want you to think about that for a minute, right? Is that right? The depth that's there. Look at this statement in 1 Corinthians 15.3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now let's unpack that for a minute. What all do we have? Just in that particular verse. Number one, that there is such an individual taught in the scriptures as Messiah. Number two, that Messiah, excuse me, that the scriptures prophesied that Messiah would die. Number three, in that statement is the assumption that human beings are sinners. He died for our sins, right? Are we sinners? That is assumed in the statement. Number four, what's assumed in the statement is that in order for us to be right with God, we cannot on our own, through our own works, achieve or merit that righteousness, but rather Messiah would need to die in our place. And what's also there is the authority of Scripture. That is, that if Scripture doesn't teach these things, then you have the wrong Messiah, you have the wrong Savior, you have the wrong point of view. The only proper way to think about Messiah and what Messiah would come and do is by taking the scriptures and looking at what they teach. So part one of the oral tradition that Paul received and that he passed along to the Corinthians and that anyone who is truly saved has come to believe themselves is that Christ died on behalf of our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, part two, the second aspect of the gospel signaled by the repetition, right? Paul is going out of his way to repeat this and that. And that, all right? So there are all of these components. Component number two, or part number two, is and that he was buried. That he was buried. You remember just a few weeks ago when we looked in Luke? And all the gospel writers do this. When Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus down from the cross, when he takes the body, he goes in the Gospel of John with the help of Nicodemus. But they go 
And they put Jesus' body away in a tomb with an audience. The Gospels go out of their way to say that the ladies who watched Jesus die also watched where he was buried. The body wasn't taken down and hidden away. It wasn't discarded. It wasn't it wasn't hidden where people could never find it. It was openly and publicly taken down from the tree and placed in a specific tomb. And by the way, it wasn't just Jesus' own disciples who knew which tomb it was. The authorities knew which tomb it was because they posted guards outside of it. No one... No one at the time questioned where the body was. And that's the point. Everybody knew where the body was. Why is it so important that Jesus was buried? For that reason. For that reason. The evidence of burial. And there's another reason it's important that Jesus was buried. What sign did Jesus give to his generation who demanded of a sign? The sign of the prophet Jonah. That just as he was in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. It's important then to the fulfillment of Scripture. And it's important as well for everybody who was there at the time to know what had happened to the body after it was taken down from the tree. They knew. They knew not just that he was buried, but where. Component number three of the gospel. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures there's that phrase again isn't it according to the scriptures so we now have that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures we have that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures notice that we have in that statement and really with what follows, as I said earlier, the fusion together of oral tradition and scriptural tradition. The oral tradition is only valid, though, if what is being preached orally about Jesus, what's being passed along about Jesus, is the truth according to the scriptures about the Messiah. See that? It's not just the apostles untethered in a new direction. It's, well, what do the scriptures teach about Messiah? What happened to Jesus? Well, we know this is what the scriptures teach about Messiah, and we know this is what happened to Jesus. These match. In fact, let me take you back to another place to show you that this is, in fact, what Paul is doing. We looked at it a few weeks ago, but let's go to Acts chapter 17 for just a second. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17. 
I'm much more concerned that we see these things together and rejoice in these truths together and have our minds confirmed in these truths together than I am with either time or distance in study. <laughs> All right, so let's look at Acts 17. Look at Paul's preaching. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, this is verse 1 now, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, now notice this too, as his manner was. All right, so this is what Paul's custom was. This is what he always did. He went in unto them. Unto who? A synagogue of the Jews. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. All right, now notice Paul doesn't show up and say, oh, you foggy old Jews there stuck with your Old Testaments or stuck with your Bibles, let me tell you something God's revealed to me. He's not doing that. Paul is going in to a Jewish synagogue and he is laying out an investigation. He's investigating the scriptures with them. He's looking at the Bible. All right, now let's keep going. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. That is, it was necessary for Christ to have suffered and risen again from the dead. Now notice, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. See what's happening? What do the scriptures teach us about Messiah? What should we expect? We should expect a Messiah who dies and rises again. Notice that he doesn't start with Jesus and argue back to the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. He starts with the scriptures. Here's what the scriptures say about Messiah and he argues forward to Jesus. It's precisely what he's telling the Corinthians he did with them too. Here's the message that I received. Here's the information that I received. Here's what I passed along to you. And all of it is founded and based so far upon the scriptures. Now what reason does anybody have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament scripture? Did he die? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Did he rise again? Isn't that the question? Did he rise again? Well, let's see. What reason does anyone have to believe that Jesus rose again? The fourth component of the gospel. and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. I told you a minute ago that verses 5 through 8 form a unit, and they do. Now, something changes. We've had the repetition of and that, and that, and that. Now, Paul will repeat a new word, actually two. Paul's focus from verse 5 to verse 8 is on chronology. That's number one. We get the repetition of a one word of time. 
which would in, our, in English translate to something like thereafter, or in American English, we would just use the word then, 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 then. But there's a chronology. But the word that he repeats the most, beginning in verse 5, is the word was seen. Was seen. All right, let's look at that. We're going to read this again because I want you to hear it. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, notice that, all right, thereafter. He was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of the apostles, and last of all, he, what? Was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now the focus is upon what? Eyewitness testimony of what? That Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus rose from the dead. What substantiates that Jesus can be Messiah? Did he die? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Did he rise from the dead? And that is, of course, the question about the, about the foundation of our faith. Does our faith have any foundation? Does it have any substance? Is there anything to this thing called Christianity? Well, that all hinges upon did Jesus rise from the dead? And here Paul has gotten back to that again. What reason does anyone have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? We have all of these eyewitness testimonies. And by the way, we know that Paul is only giving just a few. Because if you go back and you compare all the Gospels, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first. She sees Jesus first. Then the apostles see Jesus. Then these other Appearances of Jesus, where, he, where the disciples are in upper rooms or they're along seashores or the men on the road to Emmaus. We get countless, countless appearances of Jesus according to the book of Acts over the space of 40 days. It just keeps happening again and again and again and again. And it wasn't just a one-off here and a one-off there. It wasn't somebody off by themselves with nobody able to substantiate what really happened. No, if you look, if you look at the testimony Paul gives in verse 6, 500 brethren at once. And what do you ever find it strange the second part that he adds? of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Why include that? Why tell the Corinthians or remind the Corinthians that the majority of the 500 who saw Jesus at once, that they are still alive? Simple. If you need confirmation again, you can go ask them. You can ask them. Notice what Paul is doing here then. You think about what he's doing. 
He's giving the Corinthians scriptural reasons to believe this is what Messiah would, this is what would happen to Messiah because this is what the scriptures teach. This is what happened to Jesus. And we know Jesus rose again the third day because we've got all of this eyewitness testimony. And by the way, yes, even though I don't think I should be included in this, I'm not worthy of this, the last person in the chronology to be an eyewitness, a, a physical eyewitness of the physically resurrected Jesus is me. You want evidence that there's resurrection. Jesus is the evidence that there's resurrection. And we have evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. See, and I'm going to be critical just real quick. Hopefully not fighting. But over the years, we've all heard 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 relied upon as the definition of the gospel. We just always stopped one verse short. It's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's also the appearances of Jesus that give testimony to the fact that the man that was crucified and buried in Joseph of Arimathea's, th uh, Arimathea's tomb was in fact resurrected from the dead three days later. And there are all of these eyewitnesses who saw him. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't just what they said happened. It wasn't a case of mistaken tomb. It wasn't a case of mistaken identity. It wasn't a case of being hallucinogenic. Real physical, a real physical event happened. Death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the gospel I pass to you. This is the gospel you believe. And the fact that it is true is why Paul could write of the Corinthians at the end, don't be movable. Don't be shaken. Continue steadfast. Be obedient. Keep living the way you're living. Keep preaching what you're preaching. Don't let the message of men who are telling you there's no such thing as resurrection, don't let their message distract you and detract you from what is true. And here's all the evidence you've had it. You've had it from the very beginning. Now listen, and I'll leave you with this. The Bible is open and honest with us in so many ways. But one of the key ways it's open and honest with us is to tell us up front. If what is claimed herein turns out not to have happened, then what you believe is wrong. The Bible says that. Paul will say that in this very chapter. He already has. You don't get that even in modern philosophies, do you? The 
because modern philosophy is, well, something is true merely because I undertake to believe it. And the fact that I believe it makes it true for me, and it may not be true for you. What a strange, confused world we live in, where, mere, where something gets to be merely something gets to be true merely because we believe it to be the case. And yet our lived experience is just the opposite. Because you and I both know, just to use an extreme illustration at the end, that if on my drive home, I, I profess to you before I leave that I believe if I drive in the left-hand lane that I'll make it home safely. I'll never crash, I'll never wreck, I'll never hit anyone head on. You have enough sense to know that just because I believe that to be true doesn't somehow make it a reality for me. Not only that, you and I know something else. And this is really where modern ideas disturb me. You also understand that you wouldn't be loving toward me to say, well, I'm not going to judge you if that's what you believe. That's your place to believe it. You go right on. In fact, we'll help you, you know, we'll block traffic for you for just a minute and let you get in the left-hand lane. You and I understand it's not caring and loving to let people operate on false beliefs. It's not being judgmental. It's being loving to persuade people that wrong ideas are wrong and to present to them the truth. And there's no greater truth from which a person should live his or her life than the truth of God's existence and of Jesus' resurrection. Because otherwise, to live your life from any other point of view is to live it in the left-hand lane of oncoming traffic. And it may not be in this life, but there will be a judgment. The car crash is coming because sooner or later, all lives have to be lived and viewed from the point of view of what is actually real and true. Jesus' resurrection is real and true. And our faith has substance. Thank you for being here. I'll ask you to join me in standing. And I look forward to seeing you back here this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the time we've had to spend in your word. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the testimony and evidence that it provides, both from you and from your disciples. Lord, help us to stand for the truth, to preach the truth. Help us to have an interest like Paul and ensuring that our understanding of your word is correct. Help us to be diligent in the searching of the scriptures that we might be able to know what you've revealed 
to preach it to others, to believe it ourselves, and to live our lives in obedience to you based upon it. We pray for our generation. We pray that our church would be a shining light of truth in the midst of this generation, that others might come to understand that they have to face the reality of your existence. And not only that, but of the reality that there is only one mediator between you and all of mankind, and that is Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our lives would be lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ, that we would live with the certainty that he is coming again, and that our lives would be lived with the purity that such an anticipation demands. We ask for your protection as we go to our homes. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.